0: Let me say it's wonderful to be back in the UAE Uh, and, uh, Manoj, uh, particularly at this event which I know uh, you have done so much to build up. Uh, I understand that I have to briefly describe the state of the world so that we can then set up an interesting conversation with uh, Dr. Ranbar. So let me share my thoughts both about How the world looks to us as well as where the relationship with the UAE uh, fits into in that world. If I were to pick the key concepts which define the world today, uh, probably I'll settle for about three or four. Uh, Obviously, the first would be globalization. Uh, the impact of globalization on the world. Two, I would speak about rebalancing. Rebalancing meaning that uh, the, the weight of different nations and different regions in the world have changed in the last many decades uh, and uh, a lot of that derives from globalization. Some of it is autonomous of globalization. And so, when you think today of which are the crucial regions, which are the important countries, rebalancing uh, tells you that they're not the same or not the same to the same extent as before. As rebalancing advances, I would pick a third concept, uh, multipolarity, uh, which is that uh, some nations and maybe some groupings. have acquired that much importance and influence that they're regarded in the international system as one of the poles. Uh, and the number of poles from an era 75 years ago, where we thought in binary terms of uh, the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. or the West and the East, today you actually have more independent or autonomous uh, centers of decision making. So the more rebalancing uh, carries on, uh, the more we are going to see the emergence of multipolarity. So the flow in that sense would be the deeper that globalization gets, the more you're going to see rebalancing, the more rebalancing you get, the more you're going to see the emergence of multipolarity. But having said all this, it's also true that there are the constant Practices and uh, traditions of international relations uh, that remain at work. Uh, International relations are still primarily defined by the nation state, uh, by competition and collaboration among nation states, by convergences among them. So, uh, while we often tend to talk about the changes, and rightly tend to talk about the changes in the world, Uh, I think it's important, particularly for practitioners of not just diplomacy, of anybody who has anything to do in the world, to remind themselves that while the world changes, there are constant factors at work, Uh, there are sometimes historical factors at work. So uh, my description today for the state of the world, for all the advancement, the advancements of economy, of technology, uh, the progress we see even of connectivity that about 3 decades ago the world was described not literally as a as a time of the end of history i think today we are seeing a time of the return of history return of history in the sense of countries and regions which were relatively more dormant or less able, less capable, now actually seeking out more space, uh, offering more capabilities, exercising more influence, taking on more responsibilities. So it is definitely a very different world. It's also different because both the past and the future is equally embedded uh, in the present. Now, if we were to speak about the return of history in this part of the world, I think a very natural example of that is India-UAE relationship. Because if you look at our ties, our ties in fact are ties which are defined by the monsoon, by the most basic forms of mobility when people waited for wind behind their back to take them to where they wanted to do business. And it isn't just that we have a tradition the, in that tradition there are actually centuries of comfort that if you look at the ability of india and uh, the uae uh, the is not just intrinsic it's often intuitive There are a lot of things we don't need to say uh, there are times when we may uh, occasionally have a different perspective Even that is often expressed quite subtly uh, between us. So uh, when I look at the return of history and the relationships which will go forward in the coming days, I certainly would rank the India-UAE relationship very high in that. And there are many reasons. Uh, I think the two very obvious ones are uh, one, of course, the UAE is today India's third largest trade partner. Uh, it is our second largest export market. And the second, that more Indian citizens live in UAE than in any other country abroad. So whether we are talking people or whether we are talking business, this country has a particular salience uh, in our perspectives. Now what has been the change in this relationship? Uh, I think we have seen on the bilateral side, actually especially after Prime Minister Modi's visit in 2015, a visit which took place uh, after uh, more than four decades uh, at that level, we have actually seen a veritable transformation uh, in our ties. Uh, As as I pointed out, certainly our trade and investment has gone up. Uh, but if I were again to pick a defining, uh, a defining uh, moment or a defining decision of that change, it would be the SICA. The fact that we were able to uh, conclude a comprehensive economic cooperation agreement so quickly and has led to such effective results thereafter, I think say, speaks really volumes uh, for the relationship. And we are now moving into new areas. Uh, Today, uh, our discussions are about space, it's about education, it's about artificial intelligence, it's about health, it's about startups. So again, the the old, the traditional energy trade investments, those continue. But a new agenda is also coming into being and to my mind, that is something that would really uh, redefine this relationship and uh, help it uh, go to a higher orbit. The second aspect of this relationship today is our uh, ability and our effort at actually uh, expanding it to other partners, other partners with whom we have mutual comfort. Uh, Right now, to me, the obvious example of that is France. Uh, We have uh, just this year taken our trilateral with France to a ministerial level. Uh, we certainly want to expand that but we are also uh, india and uae doing more things together uh, in other geographies uh, africa is an example we together have had a, are exploring the possibility of health cooperation in africa and then if i were to sort of go a little bit broader in the canvas uh, i would cite to you uh, the uh, the establishment of the I2U2 mechanism uh, between India, Israel, UAE, and the United States. Uh, as yet another example of how our change relationship, India and UAE, is now beginning to have uh, a broader ripple impact. The fact that it is fitting into actually transformations which are independently underway uh, in this region and often helping to take the direction of the transformation uh, forward. So the, the picture I see today uh, of India and UAE is really of two countries, very comfortable, who've known each other a long time, but who've rediscovered, uh, in a sense, the relationship uh, in the last decade, and who want to use the relationship today in a changing world not just to survive in a changing world, but to shape a changing world. So it is in many ways a very ambitious relationship uh, because it's, it's not limited uh, really by its uh, bilateral possibilities. Uh, my, it's certainly today having a regional uh, impact, uh, but I'm very confident that as we uh, get deeper into the relationship, uh, it will also make itself felt at the global level. So uh, uh, once again, I want to say I'm really delighted uh, to be with all of you this morning. Uh, I wanted to set a tone, not because everybody wants to necessarily start a conference optimistically, they should, but I wanted to set a tone because as someone who along with Dr. Anwar, we have been witnesses to this transformation of this relationship from inside the room. So I want to share with you that confidence, that sense of confidence inside the room about where this relationship is going, and I hope that the rest of the conference uh, you will be able to build on that sentiment. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Jai Shankar. Don't go too far away. I'll have you back up here on the stage in just a moment. You spoke there about the partnership and the many different connections between India and the UAE, including the comprehensive economic partnership that covers everything from bilateral business opportunities to how the two nations can partner for global impact on critical regional and global challenges. So, I'd like to invite you back to the stage, as well as joining us uh, with an important voice from the UAE. Please welcome back Dr. Jay Shankar, as well as the diplomatic advisor to the president of the UAE, His Excellency Dr. Anwar Mohammed Gargash. <laughs> welcome, you can sit just here. No, I'll I'll sit here. I've been been instructed to sit over here. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, excellencies. Welcome, Dr. Gargash. Honored to have you with us here today. So, I'd love to begin by asking you to expand on something that you wrote on Twitter the other day, that the Western system of values is not necessarily synonymous with human values and that the history of mankind is based on the multiplicity of civilizations and cultures. I'd love to hear how that applies to our present challenges. Well, I, I,
2: I think uh, Dr. Jashankar uh, mentioned uh, that, but more from a political context. I think that uh, it is extremely important that we value uh, political diversity we value uh, cultural diversity and i think only through this sort of process are we able to continue the communication that's important in uh, between countries i think uh, we do share a lot of values as uh, you know as human beings living in in this globe but at the same time we also have Uh, various also uh, cultural uh, traits and cultural uh, diversity that makes this world uh, Mm. such an interesting place. So I think it is extremely important as we move forward uh, not to superimpose values that are perhaps suitable for certain societies, Mm. Uh, and we're all fine with that. Give me an example about
1: what you mean.
2: I think in, in various things, I think. I think a lot of uh, uh, values about, for example, dividing the world into democratic states and authoritarian states. Mm-hmm. I think this is a binary view that just doesn't work because really there are so many shades of grey between this uh, end of the spectrum and that uh, end of spectrum. I think if you, if you, accept, if you accept the concept of... Uh, uh, of respecting uh, diversity, then really that acceptance of diversity really cascades down to everything that you look into. So it's not a single example here, but really it's a call for the world not to look at uh, issues and look at uh, areas of interest in a binary uh, view.
1: Interesting. We seem to be entering this new era of globalization uh, where, at the moment, it feels like bilateral relations are taking precedence over potentially multilateral uh, relations.
0: Let me put it this way. You know, we saw a certain kind of globalization acquire a great deal of momentum, uh, probably from the mid 90s uh, till about five years ago, five, seven years ago. A lot of it was propelled economically. It was facilitated by technology, very driven by investment. But it also created exactly the point which Dr. Anbar uh, mentioned, a kind of globalization ideology.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, Ideology that there is one globalization and there is one truth, one narrative and a certain narrow set of people who will define what is right and what is wrong. And what happened was very interesting. Within societies, because globalization produced inequalities within societies, Mm. Uh, for example, you saw even in the United States there was a hollowing out of the industrial economy. It created a backlash. It also created problems between societies. Mm. So you had actually a very interesting phenomena, I would say, Uh, Certainly, uh, uh, argumentation in the world about globalization. Uh, I think it's one of, right now, one of the most important Mm -hmm. uh, debates. And, you know, when I spoke initially about rebalancing, we've seen political rebalancing, many more states express political views. We've seen economic rebalancing, the GDP's share of global economy has changed. But to my mind, one of the toughest. Uh, uh, you know, uh, disputations we are now entering is really cultural rebalancing, which is who gets to define what is right and what is wrong, what is normal and what is not, Mm -hmm. what is correct and what is not. And I I think today that's a very, very big issue in international relations.
1: Interesting. Dr. Anwar, I'd love to to give your view on this idea of, of bilateral relations versus a multilateral approach. Do you see that?
2: Well, again, I think uh, every. I think uh, we can speak about you know, and this is also, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, you know, a reductionism, so to speak, but we can speak about bilateralism, multilateralism, or we can speak also about a smaller multilateralism, which mm-hmm. is also proving very effective today. I think uh, bilateral relations usually are easier to manage or more difficult to manage depending uh, the trajectory that you are actually going on. But I think they are usually much more effective, of course. But they are not a replacement for multilateralism because there are many issues, and I think climate is a good example where it just cannot be dealt with uh, bilaterally. But I think more and more, and I think here in things that we are doing with India, you can see that Uh, in some of the smaller relationships, and then you see this in the I2-U2 as an example, you have the potential of agility and at the same time of effectiveness Mm -hmm. uh, because you are not trying to move 30 states or 50 states or whatever, but you have uh, more or less uh, a much smaller number of states uh, that have a certain common interest in a certain area. So I think every uh, successful foreign policy has to work on all these uh, different levels, because each level actually has its pros and cons.
0: You know, if I could just yeah. add to that, I mean, if I take India, and UAE, I mean, we have to do a sepa So it's a kind of today. You know, there's so many issues and so many variables and so many platforms. The truthful answer to your question is kind of all of the above. Mm-hmm. you got to work. Every opportunity and every platform to get the best results.
1: Well, let's take one of these examples and let's look in particular at COP 27, uh, finished recently. I'd love to hear directly what went right and what could have gone better.
0: We are looking at each other. <laughs> I, I will yield to my host, of
2: courtesy, okay. as the host of the next well, COP. I, I think uh, you know the. Uh, again, I look at it not as an expert in climate change. I look at it more from uh, a political, let's say, uh, perspective. So I think uh, COP, uh, I think the main, main thing was really the framework of addressing concerns of developing nations. Mm -hmm. Of course, we still have to put all the details and the working mechanism in place. I would say that this is the uh, uh, big breakthrough Mm -hmm. there. But on the other hand, of course, we know that we are slipping on commitments uh, that mm-hmm. were made in Paris. And I think uh, this is something that we do really need to work diligently to, uh, to, to, uh, together in order uh, to address that. So I wouldn't say that uh, w- something went wrong. But I think that the international system is not as effective. Mm. And as quick as it should be in addressing what we are really seeing, the effects and the ravages of climate as we move uh, as we move forward. But definitely, I think also what is extremely important and especially from the perspective of a country like uh, the UAE, which is uh, quite uh, bullish and uh, working very hard, on sustainable energy but is at at the same time a hydrocarbon uh, economy. Uh, This realization that the transition is not going to happen overnight Mm. and will also need for everybody to understand that it will need a parallel hydrocarbon support for Mm. countries like India and like us and other countries that still need to develop their economies, address uh, societal uh, requirements in education, and in 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 housing and in infrastructure, etc. So uh, I think the big big uh, takeaway has definitely been uh, addressing the concern of uh, of support for developing economies. Mm-hmm. But we ne- we do need to move much faster.
0: If you know, uh, I could add to it. Uh And it's not COP 27. I I think whatever challenges precede COP 27, they will carry on beyond COP 27. There are two parts to it, really. Uh, One is the climate action part, which is do you have the capabilities and the deployabilities and the efficiencies and the economies, really, uh, to put in place uh, uh, a set of uh, uh, you can say options out there or practices out there so that uh, our our growth is greener. Uh, m- you know, my sense is that's much more about global business, about public policy, about mm-hmm. sharing, etc. There's the other part, which is the tougher part, which is climate justice. Mm. Uh, and the climate justice part is that the promises which have been made to the developing world uh, Essentially, it's like those who are occupying carbon space
1: mm-hmm.
0: have kept promising that they would help others, and frankly, they've kept shortchanging the world. Mm-hmm. And they come up every cop with some, uh, you know, some new argument, some evasion, something which keeps kicking the can down the road. So the real problem you're facing today uh, is that mm-hmm. of the rest of the world. But yet you'll say, well, you know, they are a big emitter, so maybe they should step forward. Hello. They – this was not the country which occupied the carbon space. So somewhere people need to, you -hmm. know, be truthful about it and say, you know, who is really responsible for the global warming uh, and the countries which are need to step up.
1: I can hear an element of frustration uh, in your voice as you speak. I thought
0: it was was (laughs) an element of truth, but I am (laughs) prepared to settle for your word.
1: (laughs) So what should we be doing differently, and how can we move to a, how can we move forward? Because as you say, it's happened year after year, cop after cop.
0: Well, look, uh, the the fact is, if on the one hand we truly believe this is existential, you know, how can you say it is existential and I don't have the money to deal with it? Mm. You know, either it's existential, and you put everything you have or it's not. And, and you're actually uh, sort of, uh, as I say, you're not really willing to walk the talk. Mm. Now, the fact is, there have been other situations where countries have been willing to put up money. You know, they, so it's not like uh, there isn't the resources. And again, this idea that, well, you know, private financing, that's one of the, mm. the narratives which emerged a little bit later mm. when, when people really didn't want to pay up. Your private financing will take care of it. You know, p- private financing will follow. Private financing cannot lead. Mm. Governments have to lead. Multilateral development banks need to lead. And this is one of the big issues, I, th- I think, which a large part of the world is grappling with. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, much of that world is not heard today because the global conversations are very one sided.
1: There did seem to be some movement around the idea of reforming the Bretton Woods institutions and that seemed to come during the conversation. Would you say that that's true? Were you heartened by that? I would say
0: it's something which needs to be done. I, I would uh, defer to Dr. Anwar here. I'm not, you know, I'm, I, let me put it politely, I think it's lo- there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. Mm. Uh, yeah.
1: Right? What would you add?
0: Definitely.
2: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs>
1: So one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Anwar, said that the world's failure to invest enough in fossil fuels before cleaner alternatives can fully meet today's energy needs is a recipe for disaster. So what should we be doing differently now? Well, I think
2: uh, we need uh, these several things that need to be done. I think first of all is we need to work collectively. This is uh, not a national Issue, it's a global crisis. So continuing to work uh, quickly, collectively, is extremely important. I think at the same time, we need to move faster also. And I think part of it also is the climate justice mm-hmm. that uh, Dr. Jay Shankar just spoke about. I think that is essential because various countries, you can't tell them because of climate, you can't also at the same time develop, uh, not develop the infrastructure the sort of social mobility economic mobility mm-hmm. of your population uh, because you miss the boat i think this is totally unacceptable in in, in various ways i think from our uh, uh, emphasis we have been trying to also be realistic while seeing that while we are all focused on uh, on sustainable energy taking a larger Part in the energy mix. We also understand, and I think this has been very clear in the last year or so, that there's a lot of at least region have a very solid almost 15 years or more of believing in sustainable energy and the necessity of addressing uh, climate. We've been the first country to, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, buy into the Paris uh, Accords. We have been at the same time, uh, we have been also at the same time, the first country with the net zero uh, results. We have invested heavily in solar. We have invested heavily in solar. Uh, we have various, various investments that show our uh, trust in this course that we are taking. And we're, of course, looking forward to COP28. And what we want to do in COP28 is to try and get out with a lot of actionable uh, results in, in, in that uh, perspective.
1: Interesting. I'll let you recover from your cough. You all right? Okay. Uh, you said, I, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more, Dr. Shankar, because we, we saw COP27, one of those places where India yet again is emerging as a pivotal country between the East and the West, the North and the South. Uh, and we've also seen that in the G20 as well. And there's been praise for the Indian delegation, of the G20, working really hard to seek consensus between Moscow uh, and the Western camp, and you've said yourself that the, the war in Ukraine is actually sucking up oxygen in, in Europe. I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Uh, thank you. That one. No. <clears throat> Sorry about the cough. Look, uh, I think <coughs> we have two big divides today. One you could say is a kind of east-west divide centering around Ukraine. Uh, one is a north-south divide, uh, centering around development. And Ukraine is <coughs> also having an impact on, on development. So uh, I, I do believe a country like India uh, can can play that bridging role. Mm. Not alone. I, I think UAE, for example, can, in a sense, has also been doing some of it. So so would some other countries, but there is the need today to bridge.
1: Mm. That's. Do you want to add to that, Dr. Anwar?
2: Yes, I think uh, we all want to see a quick end to the conflict in Ukraine, and we all believe also that this conflict uh, is will not end except political, politically, and through. A political process, I think it is in, the, in our interest to make sure that there is a political process that ends this conflict, but I think also that at least from the UE's perspective, I think we our position on uh, the conflict in Ukraine has been a very principled position. I think from the uh, why, you know as a country our size in this region, I think we uh, don't accept that conflict is resolved through uh, military means and at the same time we think that uh, in, the interna- in this international system sovereignty has to be uh, protected and sovereignty has to be respected. But while we're saying that the devices that need to be used are political devices. It should be political process that will resolve this. It should be a political process that will ensure that conditions following the end of conflict in Ukraine are not the sort of uh, conditions that will bring about another conflict in a few years. I think uh, only a political process is able to do that, Mm. to address the Ukraine issue, but at the same time ensure that grievances do not bring about another conflict out of uh, the way that this thing has been resolved.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about, um, about technology. You have both yes. mentioned the, the partnership between the UAE and India. Uh, Dr. Shankar. you've said recently that the rise of India will be deeply linked to the rise of Indian technology, and it is a tried and tested tool for spurring economic improvement, but technology nationalism can also be a vaccine. So I wonder how you avoid technology nationalism while encouraging technology growth.
2: Well, again, I, I think uh, the UAE has uh, benefited from globalization and has benefited from a world that has been uh, more of an open, competitive. A trading uh, and, and ideas, actually, uh, platform. Mm. So really, we do, we do look with concern uh, at the sort of technology nationalism that you have spoken about. But we understand that at the root of these concerns is political issues. These are not, at the root, are not technological issues. Mm. They are national security issues, political issues. And I think we need to accept that while this sort of tension is in the international system, there will be a ripple effect. There will be a ripple effect on how we uh, trade. There will be a ripple effect on how we uh, uh, invest. There will be a ripple effect on how we sort of work uh, in technology, uh, collaborating rather than uh, always competing. This is a sort of world that we are moving into following the sort of uh, naivety of the early uh, globalism. It's not uh, a good place to be in, to be honest, but I think at the same time uh, there are political reasons, there are national security reasons. I think for us, a country our size, in our region, this is a tougher world to navigate, but that's the way it is, and we have to navigate it. It's natural
0: technology would be nationally used. So we shouldn't pretend that something has fundamentally changed. Oh, everything has fundamentally changed. Uh, There will be national competitions based on technological capabilities, different nations, different groupings of nations. Uh, asserting their influence or dominance or whatever you call it. That's that's for real. That's the part which I said, the the Mm. constant competition among nations. But there are are some real issues out there. Globalization is going to make us work collaboratively uh, because it's in our mutual interest. But if you come, say, to some parts, let's say digital technology, there's a real debate going on today about trust and transparency. Uh, about, you know, are all all countries, all companies, all providers the same? Does it matter to you under which law, regulation, ethos your Mm. data is residing? I think we can't run away from those Mm -hmm. issues. So uh, if you ask me, will we see, um, (coughs) in a sense, uh, uh, disputation, argumentation, maybe stronger in the technology world, absolutely. I, I don't think it's a matter of prediction, I think it's already there. So we, we need to start taking positions.
1: And it's not just nation states that have a, a stake in this game either, it's, it's companies as well, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk for a moment about the technological hegemony of some of the big Western companies at the moment vaccines or tweets, a lot of the intellectual capital for technology innovation is controlled by some of these larger Western companies. And in fact, Dr. Chajanger, I think you have over two million followers on Twitter. I wonder in your world, what do, in your better world actually, what do Uh global technology (coughs) platforms look like?
0: Look Uh, Again, um, you know, today you have tech companies. If you took their market cap and uh, uh, sort of put it up against the national economies of countries, I suspect some of them may qualify for a G20.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, some of them. Would are you that, welcome them? Uh, some of them are that big. Uh, so uh, we—it's—it's it's again. These are new issues that are emerging, and in the name of. As I said, narrative setting, political correctness—we can't keep ducking these issues. It does matter. Uh, for example, I'm giving you now an Indian perspective. You know, do tech companies have the same rules when it comes to cooperating on, say, national security matters? Mm. Uh, uh, you know, which which countries would they respond to? Which governments would they respond to? Which would they not? Which
1: which countries should they respond to?
0: Uh, certainly countries like India mm. so I don't know who else uh, I presume <laughs> they will respond to countries uh, in there but uh, uh, you know uh, what is I- there everything else I'm not saying everything in the world should be regulated but there are accepted norms and practices uh, and uh, uh, sort of operating ethos so if if really you have Big enterprises, which have monetized data through um, through their particular models, uh, in the name of uh, shall I say, um, uh, free freedom, would you leave them completely to decide what they should mm. be doing once they've reached that stage? I mean, there are some live controversies going on. I mean, I'm not getting into that, but you know that, and I know that. Mm. So, so. The idea that somewhere tech is neutral, tech is neutral geopolitically, tech is neutral within societies, it's not true. Mm. They've not been.
1: Think about it. What does this look like from your perspective, Dr. Anwar?
2: Well, again, I, as I said, I mean, uh, technology, uh, number one, is a great wealth pr- uh, uh, creator. I mean, huge wealth for countries, for companies, uh, is being created for technology. Uh, I think at the same time, technology uh, provides uh, developmental leaps. Many countries through technology can actually uh, create a five or ten year leap because uh, they are big on AI or big on this or that. So I think it, it's definitely not neutral, as uh, Dr. J. Shankar said. I think from our perspective, uh, I think what is important, the UAE, for example, this year, for the first time hit uh, or is hitting uh, uh, half a trillion dollars in GDP. So we really understand this is our first time that we do hit this number and for a country our size to uh, have a GDP that uh, size uh, is quite extraordinary. But I think we understand also that to continue this sort of development, uh, we need to uh, invest in technology, we need to partner uh, in technology and, 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 and to navigate our way uh, right now along as with what you were saying is more technology nationalism. Mm. But I think that's the way things are and then we need to deal with it.
0: If I could
2: just uh, in, in a sense build, up, build
0: further on what both of us said. Uh, we, Given the centrality of technology to our existence, to our businesses, to our progress, we are going to need to factor it in more and more, both in governance and in international relations. Mm. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm giving you uh, the, the data side of it as an easy example. Uh, I think a lot of societies, I certainly would speak for mine, uh, today feel the need to be comfortable about trusted providers uh, when it comes to an area like telecom. Mm -hmm. Okay. Similarly, there would be countries who would worry about cross-border data flows, you know, who's who's handling it. Mm -hmm. Now, companies are obviously crucial, but all companies, you know, and all destinations and all societies are not the same. So, we have to, uh, you know, we we can't make it a a kind of a theology uh, that, you know, companies are safe and the problem is with the countries. Companies are part of a country. I mean, countries don't run businesses, Mm. at least most of them do, some (laughs) do. Uh, So, so I I think the whole, we are entering uh, this domain where if I were to say the next 10 years, uh, the big arguments and the big mm, the big maneuverings are going to be around technology. Mm. It's going to be around data, it's going to be around chips, it's going to be around AI, it's going to be around space. I could give you more examples. Mm.
1: So that's interesting because you mentioned in your opening remarks the cooperation between the UAE and India around some of these emerging, these other areas like space, like AI. Tell me a little bit about how that partnership you think will help you individually, as well as, as form, create this new kind of globalization? Well,
2: again, I would like to echo uh, Dr. J. Shankar's uh, enthusiasm really about the bilateral relationship. I think this gives me an opportunity to come and, and sort of uh, reflect on what has been really a wonderful, wonderful uh, trajectory of the bilateral relationship since 2015. What we have achieved in seven years has been remarkable. And I think, uh, you know, Dr. J. Shankar did not uh, perhaps uh, mention this, but I think leadership, really Prime Minister Modi's leadership and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed's leadership in this, has been a major uh, catalyst here. I just thought everybody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, to start with, a historical relationship. And this is a relationship where we've always had the private sector ahead of the curve of government. I think right now the government is giving the private sector a run uh, in in leading this relationship. And I think uh, what has happened is incredible. I mean we, uh, since 2015, the milestones are just too many to sort of, of catalog and they are all over. So what was really a good relationship an excellent relationship has become a strategic and fit for the future relationship, Mm. if I can uh, describe it in that way. I mean, if you really think about it, SIPA, uh, I was speaking to the Indian ambassador, uh, Sanjay Sudhir, uh, only last week, and he was telling me, we don't really have the official figures yet, but we are seeing about a 30% increase in uh, trade Mm following the the signing of SIPA in February. And our target really uh, is to reach uh, uh, trading levels of $100 billion with India. These are with India, $100 billion. This year. Yeah, $100 billion Mm. with India. So uh, really where can we get all that extra sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of revenue streams, so to speak, in in the relationship. I think technology is one of the major things. I mean, we're doing things in space, we are doing things in oil, we are doing things in food security, you name it, it's Mm -hmm. really across the board. DOE today, I think, is the 10th FDI uh, player in India today, and I think this is quite Mm -hmm. uh, significant, but I think the the real or the real added advantage is what we do on technology if we are able to harness uh, technology uh, make sure that we can work together in various areas of technology within our bilateral and as i said uh, you know multilateral smaller multi- multilateral forums i think you will see uh, that the remarkable achievements of the past seven years were really pale in front of what we are really seeing in, in, a, in a truly, truly promising relationship.
1: Interesting. We've run out of time. If one I, final yes, thought from uh, you.
0: i give you two final thoughts. <laughs> uh, one, you know, uh, in this period when our relationship has been very strong, we've also discovered, for example, during COVID, uh, the, that house. You know how firmly we stood by each other, mm. stood by each other in terms of handling community. We kept our uh, food supplies flowing. Uh, the cooperation we had on vaccines. So, in a world where we are going to get more disruptions due to conflict or COVID or, or climate, whatever, uh, the reliability today mm. of relationship between India and UAE, I think, sets it apart. That's my first point. The second point is, you know, the UAE is following its transformational path. A lot of us here are familiar with it. India is doing its own. Okay. Now, it so happens that the two parts have the ability to support each other. And
2: Can I just mention an anecdote, if you allow me? Uh, again, during COVID, uh, early COVID time, uh, Dr. J. Shankar called our foreign Minister and uh, he was responsible for the distribution of uh, of uh, vaccines and he called and said you know i'm looking and seeing that you have requested 200000 vaccines from india are you sure this is all you want <laughs> we can give you 2 million if you want and i think this sort of you know this touches you because really at the I think what has really happened to this uh, relationship is this reservoir of trust. I think mm. the trust that underpins any relationship really makes you do wonderful things, and I think this is what we have Thank been you. doing.
1: Thank you. That seems an appropriate moment to to end this panel, or should we say press pause, because I can see that the collaboration will continue. We'd, we're would we going to break in a moment. but.